1: Today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. We're on vacation, but that doesn't mean we don't have an amazing show for you today. Princeton historian and CNN political analyst Julian Zelizer stops by to tell us about some recent history lessons for our present day. But first, we have the CEO of Tusk Ventures and author of The Fixer, my ventures saving startups from death by politics, Bradley Tusk. Bradley Tusk, welcome to Fast Politics.
3: Yeah. Hi, Molly. Thanks for having me.
1: I am so excited to have you because we're friends and also because you're not like a public facing person. I think of you as like a person who is very involved in the wheels of government in a really interesting way. And that a lot of times, some of the stuff that you've cooked up Our listeners like probably have not heard about, but it's really interesting and in some cases super effective.
3: Yeah. Thank you. For me, look, I I just try to get shit done and sometimes that's public and people like it. Sometimes it's public and people don't like it sometimes. No one notices, you know, whatever it is, you know, I've learned that I I feel better about myself when stuff's getting done. So I just try to focus on that.
1: So you wrote a novel. Tell us a little bit about the novel.
3: It's about a campaign to legalize flying cars in New York, L.A., and Austin. And on one side is the flying car startup and their vicious political consultants. And the other side is Uber, the Autobahn Society, the transit unions, the socialists, and the Russian bomb. And it's satire, but I spent the first 15 years of my career working in government and politics and then transitioned to tech by running all the campaigns to legalize Uber and ride sharing around the U.S. And then eventually using that to launch a venture capital fund. And so I've kind of seen this from lots of different angles at this point and thought it would be a fun book to write to kind of give readers a sense of here is why people in politics really make the decisions they make. Here's why people in tech make the decisions they make in venture capital, in media, and so on. And by making about flying cars and making it slightly crazy, uh, it's hopefully a fun rate as well
1: some of these things or some elements of it are things you actually experienced when you were bringing uber to new york right
3: yeah there are things i experienced i was bringing uber to new york or denver or miami or la or anywhere else but there are also things that i experienced just throughout my my career right so between being the deputy governor of illinois and working in new york city politics I've testified in five corruption trials or grand juries, so the the part in the book about the FBI and public corruption investigations, thank God I've only ever been a witness, but um, I knew enough to uh, to be able to write about it. And so, yeah, I've seen this from lots of different angles. And the book is satire and it's fiction, but it's sort of barely satire, and barely fiction.
1: Yeah. Oh, isn't that that's the story of my life right there. Barely satire and barely fiction. So talk to me about your work with Free School Lunches, because yeah. this is something I feel really committed to. It's something it's an easy solve. We are a very rich country. We do not need children to go hungry.
3: No, it's insane that we allow for this. So yeah, I'd always been interested in hunger stuff and have been volunteering weekly in soup Kitchen since I was a freshman in college and, and still do it every week now. But until I got out of government and politics, I didn't have any money. So when I finally first started my first company and started making money, I started writing checks to the New York Food Bank. And you know how it is, the bigger of a check you write, the more they bring you in under the under the tent because they want you to write even bigger checks. Right. And the th- that I noticed when that was happening is these are lovely people. And they're terrible at politics. Because they're not killers. No, they're nice people. Yeah, they want to be people. As a result, I was like, they're just not good at this stuff. And so my question was, well, what if people who really understood politics ran bills that would mandate universal school breakfast or lunch or expand the SNAP for seniors or whatever hunger program you want to talk about? And what if you had the real like, tools that any good campaign has? Lobbying, PR, polling, ads, grassroots. And so I started doing it, uh, created solving hunger out of my foundation. And we funded run campaigns in different states to mandate different anti-hunger programs. Um, and basically we're really just doing the blocking and tackling of what, you know, McDonald's or Walmart or any company funding a legislative campaign would do. We just do it instead on on behalf of kids who need food. And it's gone pretty well. So we've passed uh, twenty four bills in 20 states. about thirteen million more people now have access to food on a regular basis, didn't have it before. About six million dollars of my money has helped unlock about two billion in new state funding uh, for hunger programs around the country. And the other thing that I think maybe we're doing that makes me not so popular.
1: Yes. Tell us. <laughs> Please tell us sister. I love this so much. I die.
3: Yeah. Which is sort of the, the willingness not just to say, OK, you need political sophistication to run these campaigns. You need money to run these campaigns. Fine. The other thing is you need to be willing to go negative, right? The reality is politicians, in my view, do things in one of two cases. Either they think that you can help them win their next election, or they think that you can cost them their next election. And if they don't think that you can be relevant to either one, you just don't matter. And then just the, the concept of something is a good cause. Like if that were enough, we, we wouldn't have childhood hunger. We wouldn't have school shootings. We wouldn't have, you know, an environment that's falling apart, right? You know, the right thing is never enough to actually get anything done. And so last year in New York, which was one of the states we were working on, uh, the way the New York budget works is the governor submits her budget the legislature submits their budget and they kind of negotiate it. But the legislature's budget, because, you know, they don't actually run anything, is like massively out of balance because they just say yes to everybody, right? Right, right, right. And so we got our money in there for school meals, great, but did everyone else for anything they wanted. And we knew we weren't ultimately a priority once they had to start making cuts and the strategy from the New York Hunger Coalition was well, let's just keep our heads down and hopefully no one will notice, right? As if they're not going to notice $280 million <laughs> <bidding> <laughs> in the budget. As I'm kind of doing more and more diligence and talking to more people inside the room, like this is not going to work, right? And what he told is, you know what? It won't. It won't be 280, but it'll be 30. It'll be 40. It'll be 30 or 40 million more than you had before. So just be happy with it and shut your mouth. And I decided, you know what, the reason why we can't do better than that is because we have no political sway, right? Kids who get school meals don't vote. Their parents typically don't vote.
1: There's no big oil lobbying firm doing kids' lunches.
3: Right. You don't get anything for it politically, but maybe we could create a stick. And so we hired these mobile billboard trucks and parked them outside the Capitol in Albany for 3 weeks saying <laughs> so things bad. like
1: I mean I love it so much go on yeah yeah, yeah. sorry Yeah
3: you know speaker hasty why are you letting children starve governor Hoke why are you letting children starve and just beating the living shit out of them and we just wouldn't move them and the hunger coalition went crazy they threw us out they banned us from using their hashtag you're going to lose all the money and then eventually the people were in the room got tired of seeing these trucks And they called someone in my staff and said, what's it going to take? And my staff said, give him his money. And we got $134 million. And starting back in September, 290,000 kids every single day in the state of New York have breakfast and lunch free of charge who didn't have it last year. And so I'm probably never allowed back at like the Christmas party. I didn't get a lot of holiday cards from the Hunger Coalition this year. But a lot of kids got food. So look, that's how we do it. Our 2024 states, which we already launched, are Illinois, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and Arkansas. And my hope is is that we can just keep picking off states, you know, a couple every single year, and then maybe at some point the federal government gets their shit together and actually funds this thing at full.
1: That is so great. I mean, I just, I, I mean, obviously, don't quote me because I don't want anyone to be mad at me. But you also did some really aggressive stuff in Connecticut,
3: right? Same thing, except to make maybe a little worse (laughs) because (laughs) just physically, the way that the Capitol works in Hartford didn't lend itself to the trucks like being seen and effective. We picked the speaker, the Senate president, and the governor and sent those trucks all around their districts. So Ned Lamont, who is the governor of Connecticut, lives in Greenwich. So all through Greenwich for weeks is this truck accusing him of letting kids starve. And guess what? We got universal school breakfast.
1: Yeah, but that's how you do it, right? That's
3: yeah. how you do it.
1: Are there other things you can get that way?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think fundamentally... If you accept the fact that every policy output is the result of a political input, and if you accept the fact that every politician makes every decision solely based on re-election and nothing else, and you recognize that because of the gerrymandering system we have, only primary turnout really ever matters, that's like 10 to 15 percent. And so, you know, 10 to 15 percent on either side, or like you said, big oil, have just disproportionate influence, which is why it's so hard to get anything done. So the other thing that I'm doing out of my foundation is trying to fix the underlying problem itself by making mobile voting possible. So you know, when we ran all the campaigns to legalize Uber, and I did this again with FanDuel and Ease and Bird and a bunch of other of our portfolio companies, we mobilized millions of our customers through the app to tell their politicians, leave this thing alone. I like fantasy sports betting on demand, we deliver electric scooters, (laughs) ride shit, whatever it is, don't take it away from me. And it worked, right? Because we changed underlying input. Also the politician was like, I don't need this headache, right? Like forget it, just leave it alone. And so the question I started asking is, What if people could vote like this? And then as blockchain and cloud technology both got better, it went from sort of a theoretical, wouldn't it be cool, to let's try it out. So we paid for, and by the way, the reason that I have the money to do all this stuff is that when I worked for Uber, I I took my fee in equity and that became a lot of money. And so that's how I get to do things like mobile voting and, and hunger. We paid for seven states to conduct elections, 21 jurisdictions, we either deployed military or people with disabilities were able to vote in real elections on their phones. They all came back clean. They were audited. Turnout on average doubled. But I got a ton of shit from the cybersecurity community and from groups like Citizen Access and Verified Voting, who believe that only paper ballots should be used. Which to me is insane because paper ballots is what got us George W. Bush in the Iraq War, right? right? So like, I can't even wrap my head around that concept because it seems like it's been pretty disproven. So I said, fuck it, I'm going to build my own mobile voting tax. So three years and $10 million later, we are going to launch it in Q1 and it will be free and open source for anyone to download, work on, build on. Use And then the really hard work begins after that, which is we've got to build a movement to force politicians to allow mobile voting because if you know how to win elections in low turnout primaries, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or a lobbyist or a union or a chamber of commerce or whatever it is, you don't want to risk the power that you have. So you're likely to oppose this. And I'm going to need Gen Z and Gen Alpha, you know, or all our kids, your kids and my kids are similar ages, to just rise up and say like, bullshit, we know that it's safe and you only don't want to to do this because you don't want us to have any power. So we're working with people like David Hogg from the Parkland Movement and Aiden Cohen Murphy, who runs Gen Z for Change and other groups. So hopefully build a movement around this and pass legislation in every state that lets people vote on their phones.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. So you've been really involved in city government. It is very annoying to me to live in a blue city in a blue state and have a governor and mayor who do not reflect my values. <laughs> And also a mayor who is gonna be indicted? I mean, right, What what's happening?
3: So, yeah, so just to give the list of some context, I ran Mike Bloomberg's, one of his mayoral campaigns, I worked for him at City Hall, and also worked for Ed Rendell City Hall in Philadelphia, I worked for the New York City Parks Department. So I know city government reasonably well. And the consulting firm that I own ran Andrew Yang's campaign for mayor in 2021. He lost, obviously, but I think I understand the dynamics reasonably well look, we have a mayor in Eric Adams where there's a couple of different problems. The first problem is simply, he doesn't attract or recognize talent. You know, he has this view that he needs to be loyal to the people who were with him on day one when he was a borough president or a state senator. And that's, I guess, admirable in a very conceptual way, but not when they're not the best people to run the parts department, the transportation department, the building department, whatever it is. And so look, the thing that made Mike, in my view, a very effective mayor, it isn't that he thought of any one particular idea. It's that he just said, look, I'm going to hire the most talented people I could get. And I don't give a shit about politics. I don't care about patronage. I'm going to make them hire the same way. And then we're going to let them do their jobs completely independent of politics. And so as a result, thousands of people like you and me showed up either at City Hall or at the agencies and got a lot of stuff done, right? And to me, that's the secret to city government. And Eric Adams is the exact opposite, which is he has only hired cronies and donors and political hacks, you know, former city council members run half the city agencies. They have no idea how to run anything. And you put that all together, it's one way of very ineffective government. And I think to me, the most obvious example is state of New York has managed to issue 27 licenses for legal weed shops, and there are as many as 5,000 illegal weed shops proliferating throughout the city and state, and there's zero ability to do anything about it. It makes no sense to me. If if Mike were still mayor, we would have padlocked every single one of them and said, look, next time someone comes back in one of these, you're going to Rikers. And that could be a customer, an employee, whatever it is, and that would have put a stop to it. And I don't understand if it's corruption or incompetence or what, but they refuse to do anything about it. And so you've got a mayor who, on one hand, doesn't seem to have the talent around him to execute or implement anything. And then the other problem is corruption itself. His phones have been seized by the FBI. His fundraiser's home was raided by the FBI. He has been telling people that he's going to be indicted soon. You and I, because we're in and around this world, have been hearing the rumor swirling for the last week or so that he's about to get indicted. And so, but I think. He's going to follow the path of Donald Trump and Bob Menendez, which is he's going to say, you know what? I'm not resigning. I'm not going anywhere. And yes, Kathy Hochul, the governor, could remove him, but I doubt she'll do so because she's not going to want to risk pissing off black voters. And so as a result, we're going to have a mayor under federal indictment and then on trial for federal corruption while trying to run the city of New York at the same time. And that's a disaster.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That seems bad. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's bad. What I'm surprised by is just what a bad job he's done running the city. I mean, the legal weed stores is a really good example. But other smaller things that, you know, like they're cutting library hours, right? I mean, that public libraries are not going to be open on the weekends. I mean, there is no world in which the amount of money to keep libraries open on the weekends is not a rounding error in the city budget.
3: Sure. Although I guess people can come to my bookstore and and read, read books put them back on the shelves if if they have to. That's right. Maybe maybe I'm the secret winner in this thing. Yeah, and look, the other thing is, look, the migrant crisis is not his fault, right? He certainly doesn't control border policy in Texas or Arizona or wherever.
1: But the mismanagement of the funds that is housing the migrants is his fault.
3: It is. And the second thing would be he's already accused Biden of targeting him, that all of these corruption investigations are just a political vendetta by, by Biden. Once you cross into that level of crazy, you might as well then leverage what you have to try to get more money out of them to deal with the migrant crisis, right? So like I suggested to him, invite Joe Manchin to tour the migrant facilities in New York or have lunch with RFK Jr., not because you want to support any of these people, but that will make the White House nervous enough that somewhere in the couch cushions, they'll find that $5 billion that you need. And instead of us having to cut police officers or teachers or firefighters or sanitation pickups or whatever it is, we can have the money that we need. So, like, he's kind of the worst of all worlds, which is he's out there and crazy enough to make these accusations, but then not really tough enough to actually follow through on it. And so we lose in every way.
1: Bradley Tusk, I hope you'll come back.
3: I'd love to.
4: AI might be the most important new computer technology ever.
1: Julian Zelizer is a historian at Princeton University and a CNN political analyst. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Julian.
5: Great to be back.
1: I am so delighted to have you and for a number of reasons, but you are an academic, a historian, but you also write about what's going on now too. I think that's fair. I'm curious what you think. This moment in history, History, what is it the closest to in modern history
5: uh, you know I can't uh, give an exact comparison but look for me it always brings back the 60s which is what I study about and the second half of the 60s where the divisions were pretty deep in this country and there were issues where we were fundamentally in disagreement uh, whether it was Vietnam whether it was civil rights whether it was race relations And for me, we're at a moment like that and where some of our basic institutions are kind of being questioned and under attack
1: give me more on the end of the 60s you know sort of what were the fundamental moments that you think were sort of the turning point there
5: well certainly look the 1968 election where lyndon johnson decides not to run which i don't think is going to happen today uh his vice president huber humphrey runs against richard nixon and richard nixon was a republican he had been vice president he had been someone who crafted a whole campaign railing against institutions whether it was the media or the academy liberal institutions that he said didn't represent the silent majority he railed against social protests which he said didn't represent much of america so that campaign for me is hard not to think of when i think of how Former President Trump is certainly going to position himself and Democrats in 68 were deeply divided. Vietnam cut the party in the middle and they had trouble really kind of regrouping around that there were just not on the same page. And so that too right now, not just with the Middle East, but many issues, uh, I think Democrats are struggling with some of that as well. So that election, there's just a lot of interesting comparisons.
1: You know, it's funny when you think about Nixon, because if you close your eyes and you listen to some of Nixon's speeches, they sound very Trumpy.
5: They do. And I think it's not a total accident. I mean, those are the years, the early, late 60s, early 70s, where Donald Trump is, is coming of age and starting to gain a sense of the world and always think that he's really kind of influenced by what Nixon tried to do by many of his appeals. And even look, when Nixon's going down as a result of Watergate in 1973 and 74, he makes a lot of the same kind of arguments you hear from Trump about an establishment out to get him, about a media trying to subvert him. So I think Nixon really looms large for Trump.
1: I mean, I do think the split in the Democratic Party is a little bit different than I mean, Vietnam was, you know, do you want to send your son off to die, which I think is different than where we are right now, which is a kind of feeling that people under 50 do not want foreign intervention of any kind, which I think is really interesting. And I'm hoping you could talk about that because I see anecdotally and I also see it in a lot of the, again, I hate polls, so I don't want to say polls, but I'm certainly seeing a lot of organic events that show that people under, you know, 40 or 50 are really against, you know, America being involved in foreign wars and entanglements in a way that I think I have never seen before. I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Is it a resurgence to the time before World War II? What do you think is creating that weird sauce?
5: Three things. Look, one, this is a generation which grew up, and and mine is as well, without a draft. I mean, the draft goes away in 73. So military service is just not something that lots of Americans have experienced. It's a professional. And so I think that changes how you think of going overseas, serving overseas and in intervention. And then it's a generation that has had now two really bad wars take place. You know, Vietnam, they didn't live through, but they've heard about. And that set the template for how we think of how foreign intervention can go wrong. And then the war in Iraq, which is much closer to the younger generation, uh, which is equally a lesson for many of them about how things go wrong. So there is no World War II in their memory bank, where the United States does something that is perceived as being fundamentally good and kind of having the right outcome. They have Vietnam and Iraq. They don't have mass service. And, And obviously, the end of the Cold War kind of diminished one of the major unifying threats that many Americans saw.
1: We're watching the Ukrainian president, commander of the army go to Washington and beg them for money, basically. It's one of these things where there's a partisan divide, but I think in real life it's actually a generational divide.
5: I think that's right. And not even kind of millennials versus Gen X. I think there's several generations where this was always going to be hard to sustain. I mean, this is what Putin understood, that if he could wait it out, support here would diminish. And this is not seen by many people as a direct threat to the country. So I think we're at a point now where certainly generationally, a lot of younger Americans are going to want the government to address issues here at home, as opposed to a broader, different sorts of issues. Instead of Ukraine, I'm sure there'll be sentiment to deal with the climate. Uh, So I think that funding for Ukraine, it's not simply a partisan issue. And I think Democrats are going to have to struggle with that as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, climate was never an issue historically. I did see a big poll that showed that 70% of all Americans care about climate. I just wonder why we're not seeing more of that sort of, you know, you go anywhere and there are climate protesters doing really a lot of stuff, including in museums in Europe. I mean, there really is a movement of young people who would like to have the earth be inhabitable. Not a wildly unreasonable thing, too very
5: reasonable. And and it's not simply protesters. I mean, you can just see that. And even if it's shallow, how Americans are changing their daily practices to basic things, like what you do with your garbage to what you eat, I think it's sinking in. But look, the opposition within the United States is fierce. And that includes much of the business community, which sectors of business do not want this. And so they have money, they have clout, and they can fight it. And then the Republican Party, for whatever reason, has decided, which was not inevitable, to align against this. And so in a two party system with a polarized politics, if one party is going to stand against this, you're just not going to make much legislative progress.
1: It's so interesting to see, like when we talk about the 60s, youth protest is such an important part here. When I was growing up, we had these low turnout elections. They were a source of enormous anxiety. Now, all of a sudden, we have these incredible blockbuster elections. Can you talk to me about about that a little bit?
5: I mean, look, we'll see how it goes. I think we were in in these uh, several election cycles where younger people were feeling a sense of urgency. Part of it was a response against former President Trump where, uh, like many Americans, younger Americans felt the stakes were so high you couldn't sit home. Part of it was the pandemic, I think. I think a lot of young people kind of saw the bottom fall out of their whole world. And that can energize you politically. And and that merged with issues like Black Lives Matter. And I think all of that combined into high turnout elections. The question is, and I don't want to talk about polls since I know you don't like them.
1: Mm-hmm, I really there don't. There are know,
5: indications young people are not quite as excited this time around. And so it's going to take a lot of basic grassroots work, I think, to keep that momentum up. Young people are clearly engaged with issues. I mean, you see it all the time. But the question is, does that then turn into voting again? And I think it's uncertain. Historically, young people just have not come out to vote in the same numbers as older people.
1: The New York Times is obsessed with college campuses. You know, a lot of controversy over these three college presidents who were not clear about their moral clarity and their condemnation of anti-Semitism. It feels like the mainstream media cannot quit the Ivy League. That's true. Why?
5: Some of it is a lot of us reporters and members of the press went to some of these schools, and so I think it's familiar. Part of it is, I don't know, it's like when we talk about Hollywood, we tend to talk about, you know, 10 stars as opposed to the whole range of acting. So these become the high-profile players. Part of it, though, it's, it's not coming just from them. I think, look, conservatives have been attacking universities well, for many years, and I think Ivy Leagues, they fit the narrative. They, they're they seen uh, by the right as these elite, remote places that are disconnected from the rest of the country, even though many of the legislators doing this actually went to these schools. So I think those are some of the reasons, and uh, you're right, we focus on a few universities, and there's so many, and we miss the diversity of the student experience. We even do that with the Ivy Leagues. I mean, a lot of this is taking one or two incidents and moments. But look, the press should do better if they want to really write about what college, university life is like. They have to broaden their horizon.
1: But I do think that that's a good point, that there is such a focus on the Ivy League. And you do have Republicans who, you know, people like Ron DeSantis, who went to two Ivy League institutions and Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz, all of whom went to Ivy League institutions, all of whom are furious with Ivy League institutions. What I think so much about when McComas is like this is not really about anti-Semitism. I mean, at least Stefanik does not give a fuck about anti-Semitism. I mean, she doesn't. She's endorsed Trump willingly multiple times she endorsed Jim Jordan. I mean, these are not people who care for the Jews. It's just that this is like a moment for them to go after Ivy League presidents in the hopes of fighting against, quote unquote, wokeism, right?
5: Totally. I mean, the the hypocrisy of seeing her kind of make this an issue when right-wing anti-Semitism has been a real serious problem, not just rhetorically. We're talking about state groups, organized groups, many of whom came to January 6th, who were a real threat, uh, physical threat, violent threat. And so for a party that has been comfortable with that, who had a president from their party that you know, trafficked in this kind of rhetoric all the time Uh, to now make this the issue. It's hard to take them at their word that this is really what they care about. And they remain silent about kind of very well-documented right-wing anti-Semitism. I don't think that's what's driving her. I do think it's just part of what we've seen, again, for over a decade where The university has just become one of the central foils for the right. There are other critics who I think have legitimate concerns about some of the protests and some of the rhetoric, but that's not what's driving uh, the Republican interrogator at that moment.
1: Right. None of this is about really caring about the students. But I want to sort of segue from that. I was spending some time with someone who is an academic, who is an expert in authoritarianism. We were talking about the authoritarian impulses of Ron DeSantis, DeSantis, sorry. He took over a university. That is a real important sort of autocratic moment. And I was hoping you could sort of contextualize that like we see that with Erdogan. This is something we've seen before. Can you speak to sort of the historical significance of going after a university?
5: Well, sure. I mean, you have the authoritarian history in general, where strong arm leaders have often not wanted universities that were free of thought. That's a danger. I mean, the whole point of a strong arm leader is you make free thought difficult because ultimately that can turn against you and then even within the united states since the 70s not just authoritarianism but conservatives have been going after universities which again back to nixon since that time they were seen as these bastions of liberal ideas and Uh, there's been a concerted effort to really put political pressure to limit some of the ideas that come out of our campuses. And so on both fronts, universities are always a target. And I think right now, you know, more conservatives are feeling like they have a moment and it's broadening support for what they have been doing. And they're kind of almost capitalizing on the problems that have emerged for their own political agenda. But it's important to see kind of the risks here we really need universities in an era of disinformation and even polarized discussion we need universities as a place where ideas can still be worked through and students can learn and i think that is genuinely at risk
1: right definitely we're almost at a time but i was hoping you could talk about what's happening with jimmy carter and you know the legacy of our kind of this president who is slipping through our fingers
5: it's amazing he's he's become this symbol, I think, for many Americans of a kind of politician from another era who was so genuine about public service and who did things that weren't always politically in his interest. Then he's survived after his, his wife's passing, but he is obviously uh, not in great health. But it's, it's one of those people, I think, in, in our contentious, divisive and often toxic age, a president who at the time was not seen as successful. People are looking back and saying, well, here's someone who really in many ways might be a model for what leadership means. And I'm sure we'll hear more of that in in the coming months.
1: Thank you, Julian. I hope you'll come back.
5: Of course. Thanks for having me.
1: That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening.
5: By visiting musicgives.org.
4: You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox (laughs) Santiva.